Well, as Tom mentioned last week, him and Sheila have the privilege of, of being away this week, enjoying some time of refreshment with their girls, and, and so we're grateful for that. But we're also thankful to have in his place uh, Andrew Curry. Andrew has been the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Lisburn, Ireland since 2015. And years prior to answering that call to come pastor Emmanuel, he left Northern Ireland and he studied at the Master's Seminary, which is where I had my first encounter there with, with Andrew. He earned his Master's of Divinity, his Master's of Theology, and his Doctorate of Ministry there. He loves to preach the Bible. He loves to train up people to love Christ more. Along with pastoring the flock there at Emmanuel, he also serves as the associate director of the Doctor of Ministry program there at the Master's Seminary as well. He is married to Sarah for 11 years this past Thursday. He celebrated an anniversary, I believe. And they have three children, uh, Isla, Ian, and Izzy. As I mentioned, my first time uh, meeting Andrews when he served as a fill-in professor at uh, a preaching lab that I was a part of during my time at the seminary. And I think I taught out of the book of Lamentations, and I think I passed, so I'm grateful for that. <laughs> but Andrew, we are, we are grateful to have you, brother. He is a gifted expositor of the Word of God, and, uh, and uh, we are blessed to have you with us. Please join me in welcoming Andrew as he comes. Good morning. I was saying to the uh, ones in the last service that uh, my niece graduated high school and I got to go to the high school graduation. It was very exciting for me to go to one of these high school graduations in America. You do things very differently here. You're so positive, so positive and affirming. It's wonderful. And it was a good experience for me to be at. But Everybody got involved in the small talk afterwards, and because they heard the accent and quickly worked out that I was from somewhere else, they all started telling me about the Netflix and Amazon Prime and other random TV shows based in Ireland that they were watching. (laughs) And they told me that every single one of them they watched with subtitles. (laughs) So... If I had have known that before, I would have given your technical team a bit of a heads up so that they could have prepared this uh, more appropriately for you this morning. But it is a real joy and privilege to be with you. Your your pastor is so well respected and thought of as a Bible teacher. This church is well known as a place that loves the Word of God. And I found it a real privilege to be able to come and open up God's Word but also to have already had the joy and the privilege of worshiping our God together. I want to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 4. There's always a dilemma that the guest preacher has as to what to speak on. We, we live in a, a permanent state of fear that you will have heard the same passage preached on, you know, either in the main church or in one of the Sunday school classes, the, the week before, and it'll have been preached far better. And so we're nervous about what passage to select. So I prefer to select a genealogy because nobody ever preaches the genealogies. <laughs> it's, it's safe territory. And so we're going to go to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 4, 
And as you know, the heavenly language is Irish. And so <laughs> every name that I, you may think mispronounce, it's actually the true way it should be said. <laughs> Let me read to you Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and named, called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Meduel, and Meduel became the father of Meshuel, and Meshuel became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Silla. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and of livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He is the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Silla, she also gave birth to Jubal Cain the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Scylla, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me an other offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's many commentaries written on lots of books of the Bible, but one commentary in particular written on the book of Genesis by another Irish commentator says this, quote, Few literary forms can compete with the genealogical list in terms of their tendency to induce sleep and the potential to bore the modern reader. That doesn't bode well for you this morning. <laughs> I think that particular feeling is intensified here in Genesis chapter 4 by the fact that this is such a great chapter of Scripture. It's so dynamic in the first half. You have the hope of a, a mother, the the first mother in the world holding her child and all the aspirations that that contains. Then you have a story of jealousy and sibling rivalry. You have an account of premeditated murder. And then uh, an account of God himself intervening and doling out divine punishment. It's a dynamic chapter of Scripture. And so with all that happening, it's no wonder that when we come to a list of names. At the end of the chapter, it feels like a boring appendix to what has been such a, a dynamic story to that point. 
And yet we need to make sure that we approach this text with the influence of Scripture's testimony about itself. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Let's remind ourselves of certain truths about what we have just read. Scripture testifies clearly. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, that includes this genealogy in Genesis chapter 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And turn over to that well-known verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Scripture's testimony to itself. It begins, 2 Timothy 3, 16, not with the word some, not with the word most, not with a phrase like a significant amount, but with that very powerful word, all, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, now, let's bring that mindset to Genesis chapter 4. As we approach this genealogy at the end of the chapter, far from being something that has a tendency to put us to sleep, we can approach this text knowing that here there is God's intended guidance, hope. And the study of this passage will bring profit. It was written for our encouragement. So far from being just additional information, background, chat, what we have before us this morning is God's truth. And it has much to teach us. And yet, let's be honest. Sometimes when you read through parts of the Bible, we find that there are certain parts that are harder, drier, take a little bit more work to get anywhere with. And the genealogies are like that. And so what I want to do this morning, it's, it's a little bit different than maybe a normal approach that I would take to a sermon. Rather than jump into uh, the exposition and the points of application, what I want us to do first for a few moments is a bit of Bible study. Okay, so bear with me. A little bit of Bible study so that hopefully together we'll see where the points are coming from. And I want to do this particular Bible study this way so that when you come to a genealogy in Scripture, you don't kind of scan your eyes down it just to appease your conscience and then move on to the next bit hoping to be edified, but that you take the time in the text to study the Word in order that you would be fed. So, when you come to a genealogical roadblock in Scripture, you don't know what to do with it. I need you guys to remember 
to beep. Yeah, beep. I know here in Dallas, you guys have big trucks and you prefer to honk. <laughs> but you remember the person that gave you this tip is from you know, rural Ireland. We just beep. You know, we're very polite. Beep. So when you come to these genealogical roadblocks, beep. There's certain questions that the beep will help us to remember to ask of the text. And the first one is this. B, where does the list begin? Where does the list begin? Well, we see it begin there in verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Here is a genealogy, a list that is tracing the line of Cain. Now, we'll, we'll think much more about him and what that shows in a moment. But as a side note, let, let me just highlight to you, isn't it amazing that the genealogy is about Cain? Sometimes when we see the genealogies in Scripture, or people ask you about the genealogies of Scripture, we have a tendency to talk about them as showing the line that connects to Jesus Christ. And sometimes that is true. But over half the genealogies in Scripture are not connected to Christ. And the first genealogy of Scripture is the line of Cain. It's not connected to Christ. And I think that's helpful all by itself because it reminds us that God isn't just interested in the messianic line. He most certainly is, but not exclusively. Rather, our God is a God who is aware of all of mankind. And He takes account of the good, the bad, and in this case, the ugly. And all of them are seen by Him, known by Him, accounted for by Him, for He is the Lord. And that's why he is fit to judge all mankind. This particular genealogy in Scripture begins with the ungodly line, Cain. So, beep. Where does it begin? Second question, easy one. Where does it end? Where does it end? Well, what we have here in Genesis chapter 4 is a line that goes through seven generations after Cain. And it gives one name in each generation, but then at the end it concludes by giving us three sons and one daughter in that seventh generation. And then it kind of does something strange, because it stretches to number seven, and then it bounces back, and it dwells on generation six. This notorious character, Lamech. All his children are identified, and then we come back to think about him and hear his aggressive poem that ties all of the list off, that kind of sums the whole thing up before then we move in verse 25 to another line, another line of descent. So the list starts with a line murder, Cain. And then it finishes with Lamech, the boastful murderer. In other words, it's not really a rags-to-riches story. This is a start-bad and end-even-worse type of story. Beep. Where does the list begin? Where does the list end? The second E reminds us it's so helpful in these lists to ask the question, is there any extra information here? 
Is there any extra information here? So the genealogies, the stereotype is so-and-so begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, and you get the idea. Every so often there's a break and an injection of a new piece of information. Well, that's not done by accident. That's purposeful. And if we take note of those extra pieces of information, it helps us to become alert to what's going on. Why would Moses have wanted us to pay attention to this? What is the point being made? When you scan your eye down the extra pieces of information in Genesis chapter 4, you start to see a theme come forward. Verse 17, what happens? Well, Cain builds a city and calls the name of the city after his son. He builds the first city. He, he names it after his son, and he sets a pattern that the rest of world history will follow. Then verse 19, we read, Lamech took to himself not one, but two wives. Here's the first polygamist marriage. None of the other men have their wives mentioned. But Lamech does because, well, the writer's trying to make clear there's not one of them. There's two of them here. This is new. This is a first. It's not a good first, but it's a first. And then we learn little snippets of information about the children of Lamech. Verse 20. We learn about Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Here's the first nomadic herdsman. He he finds really an industry that will dominate the world's economy for the next 2,000, 3,000 years. He really is the industrial leader of his day. In verse 21, we have the other son. We read about Jubal. He is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. He's the creator of music. The first musician, we can think of him as the creator of the arts. And then verse 22, we read about Jubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron the first metal worker, the creator and forger of tools and weapons. You think of him as the technological leader of his day. And then, verse 23 and 24, we have another first. You see there in your Bibles, uh, the, the, the text kind of sits a little differently. It's maybe indented, or the pattern of it sits a little differently in the printing of the text and the rest. That's because what we have here is poetry. It's a poem or a song. It's written in a different form, a different style. It's not like the story. It stands apart because what we have here is the first poem or song written after the fall. You may read more like an aggressive gangster rap. (laughs) But it's poetry nonetheless. So, So do you see what we have? the pattern, the theme that links it all together. Here are a lot of firsts for for civilization. The first city, the first polygamist marriage, the first industrial advancement, the creation of the arts, the, the first technological jump, 
the first piece of human poetry after the fall. It's important to note. Beep. Begins with Cain the murderer, ends with Lamech the murderer. Extra information, we have this line full of significant firsts. And then P, beep, P. What is the position of the list in the text? What is the position of the list in the text? We could say, what is the context here? But that doesn't fit neatly into my acronym, so we call it position. In other words, what comes before and what comes after? Well, let's think about that. What happens before this list? Well, we have a story, don't we? A well-known story about Cain murdering his brother Abel despite God's warning that sin is crouching at his door. Here's an individual that should have been his brother's keeper, and yet he lies and causes God to respond in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And God's justice is put on full display as he punishes Cain and sends him away. But his grace is also seen as he puts that protecting mark on this murderer so that others will not harm him. And the narrative ends, look at verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He moves away from God. He he moves east of Eden. That's an expression that appears time and time again in Genesis that refers to the individual moving further away from that intimacy with God, from that closeness to God. And he goes to Nod. The word just means wandering, wilderness. He goes to that place of wandering. He goes away from God to a remote place. And it's there that Cain begins his line. That comes before. What comes after? Well, after Cain's list, there's going to be a big major one that comes in Genesis chapter 5. But before we even get there, we get a reminder, a preview, a a snapshot of that line in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, And he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Here we have a preview. Like this is the line that will be traced in Genesis chapter 5. But the writer gives us that one level unnecessary verse that tells us it's coming. Because he wants us to compare. Moses wants us to to see these lines side by side. We're not just to move to a new chapter. We're meant to see that there's a comparison going on between these two genealogies, these two lines. there's, There's something about them that's meant to sit in our mind side by side. That's important. Here we're told that there is Another, Eve says, 
another offspring or literally another seed because back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 God punished the serpent by promising that through the woman would come another offspring another seed that would ultimately crush the serpent's head did you also notice in verse 26 one more first for the chapter look at that last sentence then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's been a lot of firsts happening here. But here's one last one. And it's the best by far. The first time people worship. Wasn't it wonderful to sing together this morning? And to pray together this morning? And to hear God's word publicly read this morning? To worship together the, 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 the God of heaven and earth? here we read of the first time people joined together to call upon the name of the Lord. And it comes immediately after the line of Cain. So before, you have Cain himself, the head of the line, moving further away from God. And after, we have a record of there is another line that is actually calling on the name of the Lord for help. So all of that has allowed us to be detectives with the text and to think more carefully about what's in front of us. So pull all that information together. Where does it begin with Cain the murderer? Where does it end with Lamech the murderer? Well, is there any extra information? Yes, there's a list of significant firsts. In position, well, it comes after Cain moves away from God and is followed up by another line that calls upon the name of the Lord for help. So all of that helps us to understand the list itself in front of us. Here in the list, we have a record of the prosperity of the wicked as they live without God. A, a record of the prosperity of the wicked as they live without God. So now that we see that in the text, now let me pull out some points some lessons that we can learn from this section of Scripture. And the first one is this. Rejectors of God can be extremely successful in this life. Sounds like a terrible point to say out loud in church, doesn't it? Rejectors of God can be extremely successful in this life. We've got to be so careful, haven't we, that we don't impose our message on the text, but allow the text to speak to us and to shape our worldview. And that's what I want to happen this morning. And yet this point is a hard one because you've got Cain and he is, he is an arrogant, defiant man. In verse 16, don't think of a broken man crawling away. Think of a man with his fists clenched his head held pridefully high, marching defiantly east of Eden. He wants to go away from God. He wants to reject God. He wants to be further out. For this is not a God man, this is a self-made man. And as he marches in arrogance, what's the result? Well, according to the text, prosperity. He prospers. 
God said, be a wonderer. And instead, Cain defiantly built a city. But a city that became a pattern that humanity would follow after. Lamech, the other notorious case study, he goes even further. God gives this glorious institution, a marriage, one man, one woman, the two shall become one flesh. It's a wonderful gift that God gives to mankind. But Lamech, he breaks the creation design and he takes to himself two wives. What is the result according to the text of that deviant sin? Well, massive cultural advance. The whole world benefited from the development of industry, farming, the creation of music and the arts, the forging of tools and weapons, the crafting of the first piece of human poetry after the fall. This is an advancement at an unprecedented pace. And it's a result of his sin. Does that surprise you? That those who reject God in this world can and sometimes do prosper. Logically, if we think about it, it does make sense. If somebody is given by God talent and ability, because it ultimately does come from him, he has given them minds to think and skills and talents. But, but, but if they have rejected him and they only care about the here and now and they pour their energies into the here and now, it will make a difference. It will, will impact things at some level. If here and now is all that they live for and they do want to make a difference here and now, things will happen. You see that all the time, really, don't you? The, the, the arrogant businessman that only thinks of himself, but he builds this empire that creates jobs for hundreds that they can go and feed their families and everything else. Think of so many, not all, but many of the great scientists of our day. So many of them are blatantly outspoken against God. Even more so, you think of the artists, the musicians, the actors, the people that our world sees as successful. So many of them are so aggressive in how they speak about God. And yet, they are flourishing, they're prospering without Him in their life. How do we think about that? Well, I think Cain's genealogy reminds us it shouldn't surprise us. And actually, we can celebrate where they contribute to this world, but we can also reject their conclusion about God. Just because somebody excels in one area of life doesn't mean that they have any authority in another. 
Just because somebody contributes in a very small area, a nuance of science, doesn't mean that they have anything of value to say about the Bible. Just because somebody has great thoughts or advances music or the arts in a certain direction, doesn't mean that they have anything valuable to say in the area of faith. The Bible says, doesn't it, that not many, not many Christians will come from those high and influential parts of society. There will be some. We can give thanks to God for that. But not many. And we need to understand that it will always be the case that many who are involved in the intellectual elite, the art scene, the inventors of our age, Many of them will have no time for God. And there's a danger if we don't accept that up front, because there's a pressure, isn't there, that comes upon us to want to follow, to want to be like, to to want to stress the things that they say are important, to stress. But Cain's line reminds us to be cautious. Because though it is true that rejecters of God can be very successful in this life, it's equally true, secondly, that the successful can be very wicked in this life. The successful can be very wicked in this life. You think of the line that we've been studying, two things are happening all the way through. This amazing success and achievement and at the same time, very blatant evidence sin. The line focuses on Lamech. He's our case study. His sons are the great inventors. And so you can imagine this man, his lifestyle, he gets to eat steak from the farm every night for his dinner. While live music is being played in the background. And he's eating with unlike all the other uncouth people out there, with cutlery that his other son made for him. With his battle axe leaning up against the table in case anybody tries to interrupt his dinner. But this good life that he enjoys comes to him, according to the text, because he rejected God's model of one man and one woman. And instead took to himself two women. He does what he wants to do. And yes, there's a level of prosperity, but there is such a clear picture of sin here. This man is a carnal sinner. No thought given to what God would want, what God would expect of him. Rather, Lamech's life is all about Lamech. His family's inventiveness is all bent and pulled in on him. It's all about making his life better. And you see that illustrated in what happens next. Lamech thinks of himself as a you know, little bit of an artist. You know, the boy's got it from somewhere. And so he pens that first poem. Maybe it's about a weapon that his son had made for him, that he employed. But whatever happens, he kills a man. And he actually composes that song about it. 
and he screams it before his wives in prideful, defiant arrogance. If whenever Cain, at the earlier part of the chapter, he murdered his brother, he hid the fact. He lied about the fact, but not this guy. Lamech sings about it. He's proud about it. He revels in it. Here's a guy figuratively who's taken the crown of authority off God's head and marches around with it on his own. He is a self-made man, a king of his own world, a law unto himself, a shaper of his own destiny. I think it gives us a very sober reminder, doesn't it? Of the danger of culture. The three little kids at the moment, maybe it's just more conscious of it. But there's such a temptation, isn't there, as a, as a parent to fall into the trap of thinking if you can just give your kids enough of the right parts of culture, it'll keep them on the straight and narrow. A good education. Learn a musical instrument. Join a club or a sports team and, and, and allow them to be well-rounded and, and learn how to operate in a team. And if we can just get the right recipe of things involved, that'll help keep them. That, that, that'll, that, that, that'll protect them. Cain's genealogy reminds us that culture can never save your children. In fact, it goes further. It reminds us that there is a danger with culture and the arts. That the devil can actually use those same things to reinforce pride that already exists in the child's heart. And to think more of themselves than they should become the very thing that pulls them further and further into sin. It's a complicated thing, isn't it? We had such wonderful music this morning. The piano played to bring glory to God. Gifted musicians leading us in, in excellence so that we could sing praise to Him. What's the difference? Well, they were leading us to glorify Him, weren't they? culture, music, they are, they are glorious tools that can be used to bring great glory to God. But Satan loves to take the things of great usefulness and to twist it, to, to, to pull us further away from our Creator. And I think as parents especially, we've got to be so careful with those aspects of culture. It's not just low culture that can hurt our children. And Nazi Germany prided itself in being the high culture of the world. They would have these lavish dinner parties 
with the best of classical music playing in the side of the room as everybody gazed at the, the most expensive pieces of art available on the walls. And all the time, the, the, the leaders of that movement, their underlings were running back and forward, taking orders from them to the gas chambers to massacre millions. You think of this wonderful country of America. The rest of the world, we have so much to be grateful for that this country has done in the area of medical uh, study and advancement. You've led and pioneered the, 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 the discovery of many procedures that allow life to be prolonged and kept and the quality of life to be enhanced. And that's an amazing thing. And yet that exact same industry has pioneered the destruction of life in the womb. How does that happen? I think this genealogy reminds us a good life in this world is not the same as a right life. And so often in our world, culture marches forward. There is advancement, but so often at exactly the same time as the value of human life is cheapened. I'm sure in a room this size, there's many of you are maybe changing careers at the moment or, or maybe starting new courses of study, thinking about what is coming. As you contemplate that, what is moving you? What is encouraging you? What are you wanting to see achieved? You want to be successful? It's not bad, but this line reminds us that you may get that. You may get your want. You may be very successful. But without God, you will also become a blatant, successful sinner. Sin always warps and degenerates over time. And we see it all the time. The best and the brightest in this world are also so often the best at sinning and the most wicked and the most stark. Rejectors of God can be very successful in this life. The successful can be very wicked in this life. And lastly, the wicked can miss their greatest need in this life. Cain's line finishes with that aggressive rap about bloodshed and it's so gory and loud and crass, so boastful that it's easy to miss the significance of what is whispered after in verse 25 and 26. So let's read it one last time. Verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In these closing verses, we see two things. First of all, we see that that serpent-crushing promise remains. 
Adam and Eve have another son, another offspring, another seed. Eve is the one speaking. And she speaks so clearly in such clear language about that offspring because of what had been said to her back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God cursing the serpent declared, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And Eve, who whose sin and her, who, whose sin of her husband Adam had plunged the world into darkness. She longed for that promise of the offspring, the promise of the seed to be realized. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We read, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. I don't know if you have ever held a little baby in your arms and you look at it. As parents, you look at the child and you can't help but aspire. Think about all that could be done through that. This child could be This child could be a famous doctor. This child could be a world-class ballerina. And we have great aspirations for that little baby in our arms. Nobody has had aspirations like Eve. She held the baby in her arms and she didn't talk about doctors and ballerinas. She talked about the seed. Maybe this is the seed who will right the wrong that I did. The one promised by God that can deal with sin. But you know what happened? Cain got bigger and badder. And all aspirations disappeared. And Cain's life and Cain's line made crystal clear he was not the seed promised. But now another child has been born, another offspring. And there's hope that God's promise that he gave was not written off by Cain or by Lamech or by anybody else. The hope of what God will do, the hope that an offspring promised would come still remains. That serpent-crushing promise remains. But the other great thing that happens at the end of the text is that some cry to the Lord for mercy. That last first of the chapter is the best one by far. You read in verse 26 that some called upon the name of the Lord. The, the, the name in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, speaks of the character of the individual. And here, these people are crying out, falling upon the character of God. It's to Him and all of who He is that they appeal. He's a God of mercy, 
a God of grace, a God who is faithful to save. These individuals who are crying out may not have been the great inventors of their day. They may have never been able to paint a picture in their life. They certainly weren't the millionaires. Yet because they threw themselves upon the character of God, they gained more than just this life. They gained the eternal. They got the supreme thing that matters. And they sit in contrast with the successful line of Cain that we've been studying. What about Cain's line? Well, they were certainly the movers and shakers of their day. And then, well, they ceased to be. The city was built and then lost from the map. Inventors made and contributed and then were forgotten. Art was poured over and crafted and lost. The scripture says it was all like chaff that the wind blows away. They were, they most certainly were, the most significant men and women of their day. The authorities of their age. But today, well, they're nobodies. We are talking about them in this one location in our world, incidentally, and it's not as a, in a good tone. But nobody else is talking about them. The greatest of their day, today forgotten. Turn in your Bibles as we close to Psalm 73. For this is a theme that comes up time and time and time again in Scripture, but Psalm 73 sums it up so well. Psalm 73 and verse 3. The writer, man of God, trying to understand his world, says, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Pause. That's a good thing in the ancient world, okay? Most of us don't aspire to be fat, but they did. That was a sign that you never had the want. Uh, there was always food available. You never had to struggle to get a meal at the end of the day. That was a good thing. It was a sign of success. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. And yet, look at how they behave. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Again, good thing. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. 
see these blatant sinners that are wonderfully successful. How do we get our head around that? Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Death is the ultimate decider of significance. The truth is you can change this world, but then you will die and your memory will fade away. Cain's family made the best contributions to the society of their day, but they missed their greatest need. And so their story of success, and it was successful, but their story of success ended at death. But there were these common unnamed others. And for them, death was just the beginning. Just the beginning because they called upon the name of the Lord. Parents, what is your greatest hope for your children? If I was to pull the Sunday school all in here and line them up at the front and go along the line with a microphone and ask those children, what do mom and dad want for you? What do they care most about at home? What do you think they would say? Oh, they want me to do well at school. They want me to be able to play the piano. They want me to know how to make lots of money so I can look after them when they're old. Matthew Henry said, Lamech was a father of shepherds, a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. The things that we encourage at home the conversations that they remember, even the priorities that we have in our prayer time for them, does it reflect that greatest of hopes that they would know the Lord, that they would call upon His name? Those of you who are looking to new courses of study at the moment, new jobs, what are you hoping? What do you want to be when you grow up? If all you have as an answer to that question is money, fame, success, even something noble to make a difference in this world. The reality is if that's where it stops, you can get those things. But unless you call upon the name of the Lord, that is all you'll get. That's all you'll get. All of us need to consider what is our greatest desire in this life? A canite promotion of self that ends in death or a prayerful calling upon the name of the Lord. Let me close with the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so easily distracted and so easily do we become jealous of the world and all that seems to be happening in their lives. But Lord, we thank you for these moments where you wake us up by the word and you make this world 
clear, you're understandable. And you show us that though many do seem to succeed and to thrive and to prosper for this moment, it will all disappear. And that ultimately you and our relationship with you matters. We are so thankful for Jesus. And so thankful that that he has died and made a way that we can be secure forever. We're so thankful that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. But Lord, protect us all from that temptation to fall into the trap of only thinking of here and now. And instead, Lord, give us the grace to live in light of eternity. And for any maybe here this morning who don't yet know you as Lord and Savior, who haven't yet called upon the name of the Lord, may you graciously work in their heart even now, that here and now they would call upon the Lord and be saved. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.